Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This year's COP meeting began with a surprise, a huge fund for the world's poorest countries to deal with the effects of climate change. That is thanks in no small part to the work of Salimon Hook. Our obituaries editor pays tribute to a tireless campaigner. And the idea that overweight people get paid less than slimmer colleagues do isn't a new one, but our data team took a closer look and found the pay gap is even wider than previously thought. First up, though. Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, was wearing a white tracksuit splashed with color, custom-made for the occasion. He stood among a crowd outside the presidential palace this week, channeling the celebratory vibe of the music. The only winner, he said, is the people of Venezuela, Venezuela's dignity, Venezuela's sovereignty. The only losers are the government of Guyana, ExxonMobil, and the North American Empire. Stirring stuff. The win he was claiming was the outcome of a national referendum, in which voters were asked if they supported the annexation of a portion of neighboring Guyana. It doesn't seem that the vote is really the win that Mr. Maduro claims, but with a possible election coming up in the next year, he's obliged to put a brave face on it. Maduro raised this issue as a way to try and show that he can unify the country, that he can get the vote out, that he is the undisputed leader of this big issue. Stephen Gibbs writes about Venezuela for The Economist. To a certain extent, it backfired for Maduro because the turnout, we think, was far less than he claimed. And also, we have to wonder what he's going to do with this referendum now it's happened. Well, let's start with why it's obvious that Venezuelans would have voted this way. Why is it that they think that part of Guyana should be Venezuelan? Well, this border dispute goes back almost 200 years. Just after Venezuela became independent in the early part of the 19th century, it started saying, hang on, colonial British Guyana is taking 
quite a lot of our eastern frontier. This issue is part of the Venezuelan identity. It's quite hard to find a Venezuelan that doesn't agree that a bit of Guyana should be part of Venezuela. But it's got a lot more prominence in recent years since a large amount of oil was found by ExxonMobil, the American oil giant, off Guyana in Guyanese waters, as the Guyanese say. And the Venezuelans say, no, that oil, or at least some of it, should be ours because of this territorial dispute. And so Mr. Maduro thought it would be a a pretty straightforward question to ask people if they wanted some of that money. And in the end, how did it go? Yes, so Maduro raised this issue. And, you know, as one diplomat here said to me, it's a bit like asking people whether they like ice cream. You're going to get an overwhelming answer of yes. And so Venezuelans broadly voted that they do, in fact, like ice cream. (laughs) Well, yes, there there were five questions asked in quite serious detail into this whole dispute. But the two key ones really were whether the International Court of Justice in The Hague should have any right to decide this. That's actually the current process. The final question, the fifth question, was the most serious one, and it said that Essequibo, as this chunk of Guyana is called, should become a Venezuelan state, and the 125,000 people or so that live there should become Venezuelans. Surprise, surprise, overwhelmingly, the yes vote won. There was no no campaign. It wasn't at all a sort of conventional referendum from that point of view. But about sort of ninety seven percent of the people that voted said yes. And so once that result came out, uh, Maduro of course cried victory. Uh, he said that the people's voice is the voice of God and he will carry the country forward with that mandate. And there is the suggestion that the the turnout has been overstated. How many people actually cast a ballot here? Yeah, well, this is crucial. I mean, if you have a referendum where you know the answer is yes, what is important is how many people vote. Now, on Sunday, I was here in Caracas and, you know, I've got contacts all over the country, as have other journalists here, and we all noticed that turnout seemed to be pretty low. So that was looking like things were not going so well for the government. But on Sunday evening, the government announced that 10.5 million votes had been cast. And the only way we could initially understand that is that perhaps because there were five questions, they were counting each question as a vote. So if 10.5 million people have voted and there were five questions, then we're looking around 2.2 million, which seemed plausible. But the following day, after lots of reports that this was a pretty low turnout for the government, the Electoral Council, which is pretty much controlled by the government, said, no, 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 there were 10.5 million votes, which is very difficult to believe because this is a country with an electorate of 21 million. It's had a huge migration crisis in recent years. And even in the Chavez years here, there was not that sort of huge turnout. So if it happens, you'd notice it. So if Mr. Maduro then is going to carry forward with that mandate, I mean, what are we to expect? Is, is, a, is a ground invasion imminent? Well, this was one of the unusual things about this whole referendum is it wasn't made clear what happens next. The one thing that seems extremely unlikely is an invasion of Guyana. I mean, on practical terms, that's extremely difficult in terms of Maduro's international relationships. If Venezuela was to invade Guyana, it wouldn't just be invading Guyana. It would likely be facing Guyana with support regionally, including from the United States. 
And we've heard that from a U.S. State Department spokesman. We support a peaceful resolution of the border dispute between Venezuela and Guyana. Uh, the 1899 award determined the land boundary between Venezuela and Guyana should be respected unless or until the parties come to a new agreement. This is not something that will be settled by a referendum. Brazil, which shares a border with both Guyana and Venezuela, has indicated it might well come to Guyana's aid with military help. Brazil's president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, said at the COP28 climate summit in Dubai that if there's one thing South America doesn't need right now, it's conflict. He said we need to grow and improve the lives of our people. And so you hinted here that, that things have certainly not gone Mr. Maduro's way. He's he's upsetting uh, potentially America, certainly his neighbours, hinting at a war that's probably not going to happen. This has been the sort of extraordinary thing about this is just when, after several years of really appearing a pariah, Maduro was looking a bit better. The US in October, after an agreement was signed between Maduro and the opposition, has lifted a whole lot of sanctions. And then he does this. So where does all this leave Mr. Maduro for the elections that he was supposed to be preening for here? He's sort of slightly in a corner because there were primaries for the opposition in October. And a woman, Maria Carina Machado, a longtime fierce critic of Chavismo and Maduro, won that by another overwhelming majority. The opposition said that she got about 2.4 million votes, which is not insignificant given that this was not a government-run election. So now he has to decide what he's going to do. Is he going to completely bar her from politics, which is actually the current state? She's currently not allowed to partake in politics. Or does he have an election and anyone can stand but somehow try and fix it? Or does he have a fair election and risk losing? One thing the referendum has slightly shown is that Maduro does not really bring out the support that he would need to win anything like a fair election. So that opens up the possibility that people say to him, maybe you shouldn't be the candidate. But those close to the government suggest that there's no chance that Maduro is considering not being the candidate. And that's the thing about him. He might have made a mistake on this issue, but he has an uncanny ability to keep coming back and he's not a leader, really, that anyone should lightly write off. Stephen, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On these understandings, I invite the COP to adopt the draft decision contained in document if triple C slash CP slash twenty twenty three slash L dot one. Hearing no objections, it is so decided.
The very first commitment at the COP28 climate summit being held in the United Arab Emirates was the setting up of a global loss and damage fund. The landmark deal will help the poorest and most vulnerable countries pay for the impacts of climate change. It drew a standing ovation from the delegates. Part of that applause was for the work of Solomon Hook, but he wasn't there to hear it. At all the COP meetings that have been held so far, Sanimoli was always a central figure. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. What he did was find a nice strategic central point, like a sofa or a table in the middle of a meeting room. He'd sit there, arm himself with some coffee and cigarettes, and be always texting and emailing and tweeting on his phone he found it an excellent place to waylay anybody who looked useful or to welcome old friends, students, delegates, anybody he could see. He was almost inevitably the busiest figure at the conference. He was there not as a delegate, but as an advisor, especially to the least developed countries. He was a Bangladeshi himself, and he was what he called a one-agenda man. He had one thing he wanted to get past the conference, which was the idea that the least developed countries and the low polluters should be compensated for the damage done to them by climate change, which had been caused by the historical pollution by the high-income countries. He had been banging on this particular drum for nearly three decades, and in that time, not an awful lot had been done According to economists, around a trillion dollars per year is needed to support developing countries in their climate action. At COP26, which was held in Glasgow, there was an agreement at last on a £1 billion fund to mitigate climate change. But nobody was very hasty to put any money into it, except the Scots who were hosting the conference. By the next year, in Sharm el-Sheikh, COP27, he managed to get a specific fund set up for loss and damage. And it was not obtained without an awful lot of insistence that this fund should come to be. Because the United States and Europe both felt very strongly that loss and damage implied what he himself would like to have called it, liability and compensation. They hated those words and insisted that those were not used because they didn't feel responsible and they felt they had enough climate disasters of their own, such as the wildfires in California, the floods in Germany, to worry about and pay for without forking out for anyone else's. So it was a fight all the time. Even the fund that was set up last year at Sharm el-Sheikh had no real organisation. All the details had been left for this year in Dubai, which makes it all the more poignant that Salim Hook actually died of a heart attack before this present COP conference began. He was fighting these battles somewhat to his own surprise because he had begun his life in science as a biologist. He'd studied at Imperial College in London and then he had gradually got more and more interested in sea level rise and climate change. He'd gone back to Bangladesh and there he'd recommended to the government that it should have an environment department. It had not got one before, which seems surprising. And also that it should have a special think tank, which he called the Bangladesh Centre for Advanced Studies, which would make assessments of risk. 
so that the country was much better prepared for the disasters that were going to come. Because inevitably, climate disasters would continue to hit Bangladesh. It was prey to cyclones that blew up from the Bay of Bengal. It was continually being flooded by the Ganges and Brahmaputra rivers, and a great deal of salt penetrated far inland to make it difficult to grow crops there. But the country inspired him because it was finding ways to adapt to climate change. People were not moving out, they were trying to stay and survive there and make a good living. And he wanted to study them particularly in case there were lessons the Bangladeshis could teach to the West, insofar as mitigation was now not the point with climate change. You could no longer avert it. All you could do was adapt to it as best as you could. And the Bangladeshis were being extremely good about that. They'd, for example, encouraged the mangrove forests on their coasts, which not only protected them from storm surges, but also sequestered carbon and also took salt out of the water so that it was much easier to grow crops inland. Because there were so often floods, they learned to grow vegetables in bags or on floating bamboo mats, which was actually quite an old technology they rediscovered. The Bangladeshis also got a much better system for public announcements of cyclones to come. And children in schools were also educated as to where they should go and what they should do when a cyclone was approaching. So this was now an educated population. In fact, Dr. Hook said if you stopped any Bangladeshi in the street, he would soon start talking about climate change. They were very clued up about it. His main point for all the COP conferences was that they should listen to these people who were actually managing to live with climate change. At COP26 in Glasgow, he brought with him a farmer from Bangladesh who explained all her struggles to the delegates, and they listened rather respectfully. Dr. Hook felt that if all those other millions who had had their lands flooded or their houses destroyed in cyclones could have spoken to the COP delegates from the richer countries, then those delegates would realise the true sting of damage and the true weight of loss. Anne Rowe on Salim Hook, who's died aged 71. Much discussed in modern society is the gender pay gap, the fact that women, on average, get paid less than men do for the same work. The exact causes and possible fixes are debated, but there's no lack of awareness about it. Less talked about, though, is another pay gap. Overweight people experience discrimination in virtually every aspect of their lives, and the workplace is no exception. Doug Dowson is a data journalist for The Economist. Studies have long shown that obese workers, so that's people with a body mass index of at least 30, tend to earn less than other people in the workforce. And when we recently looked into this question, we found that the cost of this kind of discrimination is actually quite a bit bigger than previously thought. In what way? So the conventional wisdom among academics is that it's only women who suffer from this kind of discrimination. 
this consensus has become so strong that in recent years, some researchers have actually just stopped looking for a wage penalty among obese men. So we thought it might be worth looking into this question again. Okay, so you got into the numbers. How how did you go about getting deeper into this question? Sure. So we compiled data from a survey conducted by the Bureau of Labor Statistics in America called the American Time Use Survey. And it asks people not only how they spend their time, but also during certain years that they run the survey about their eating habits and their health, including their height and their weight. So after we took this data and reduced it down to a sample of around 23,000 prime age workers, so those are people aged between 25 and 54 who were employed full-time, we found that being obese is associated with lower earnings for both women and men. But actually, education plays a pretty big role in this relationship. What kind of role does education play? So it turns out that at the aggregate level, It is true that men don't experience much of an obesity penalty, but when you look specifically at men with university degrees, there's actually a pretty sizable effect. We found that obese men with a bachelor's degree earn 5% less on average, and those with a graduate degree, so a PhD, a master's degree, or a professional degree, they actually earn 14% less. And this is after controlling for all sorts of other relevant factors, such as age, race, marital status. When we re-ran our analysis on a different data set from the Department of Health and Human Services, we got similar results. It's worth noting that women still have it worse. So obese women with a bachelor's degree earn 12% less on average, according to our analysis, and those with graduate degrees earn 19% less. So that's quite a bit bigger effect than, than it is for men. Clearly, but that's the sort of the overall picture. Surely the the kind of work that you do must figure in somehow. Yeah, absolutely. That matters a lot. So for jobs that involve a lot of physical labor, such as construction, a high BMI is actually associated with higher wages. That's presumably because these workers have more muscle, which tends to boost BMI levels. So these people aren't actually necessarily overweight. They might just have more muscle. And for high-skilled jobs, on the other hand, the penalty for being obese is, is quite big. In healthcare, for example, obese people tend to earn 11% less, and that's even after controlling for all the important demographic characteristics. And those in management roles make roughly 9% less on average. So we're talking about pretty big sums of money. So what's to be done about this on like a sort of policy level to try to close that gap in the way that other gaps are under scrutiny elsewhere? Sure. I mean, it's tough. In America, a lot of state and local governments are looking into banning this kind of unfair treatment. Some cities already have bans on discrimination on the basis of appearance. Last month, a law in New York City went into effect banning discrimination on the basis of height or weight. And a handful of states, including Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and Vermont, are considering similar bills to the one in New York City banning discrimination on the basis of weight. But these bills aren't likely to accomplish much. So when we reran our analysis, looking specifically at workers in Michigan, where they've had a ban on this kind of discrimination for something like 50 years, we weren't able to find any evidence that it had actually worked. So outlawing prejudice is one thing, but actually eliminating it from a society is, is quite another. Doug, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Now I'd like you to go with my colleagues on Drum Tower, our weekly subscriber-only show about China, into the basement comedy clubs of New York City. They've been looking into how feminist comedy has become a form of resistance for Chinese women abroad. If you're a subscriber already, dig in. If not, and I shall not tire of pointing this out, avail yourself of all our intriguing shows and series by signing up to Economist Podcasts Plus. The link's in the notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com/banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024.